Zephaniah chapter 3. We don't spend a lot of time studying the minor prophets in our lives, do we? But these minor prophets are wonderful. There's so much here for us to learn. And we're going to just look at Zephaniah tonight. This is a passage that has just recently just gripped my heart. And so I wanted to share it with you, kind of a bridge between our Elisha study and our Genesis study. I want to share with you some, some thoughts that are kind of kicking around in my heart and my mind. And uh, I want to just lay those out for you tonight. But we're in the book of Zephaniah. Just speaking of minor prophets, when we finish up our study in Colossians, we'll probably do a summer sermon series. Um, I've got some ideas on what that's going to be, but I'm not going to say that yet. And then after we do that, probably at the end of the summer, we're going to begin a study in the book of Habakkuk. So that's another minor prophet, which is three chapters, and I'm telling you it's awesome. So get used to saying Habakkuk, all right? Habakkuk. And, and we're going to start that study coming up. So, Zephaniah chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. But let me pray for us tonight, and then we will, we will jump right in. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love. We're grateful, Lord, for this time to gather together and to focus upon you and to hear you speak to us through your word. And God, I pray that in these moments you would help us. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would take the word of God and, and, and apply it to our lives. Help us to learn it and understand it and give us the strength and the wherewithal to obey it. God, I pray that this time would not just be an exercise in growing head information. I pray this would be a time of life transformation. So, Lord, would you make it so? We place this time in your hands. I pray everything that's said and done in this room tonight would bring honor and glory to you. I pray for all the other ministries going on in other places in this building. I pray, Father, that you would just work in mighty, mighty ways. And we will uh, give you the praise and honor and glory. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Bible is clear that we are called to praise God, right? I mean, it's everywhere. Praise the Lord. Read Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We are called to praise the Lord. And yet, sometimes our praise falters uh, because we just get weary with life. You know, we get busy with life. Our priorities may shift. And sometimes we need some, some renewed motivation to, to, to give God the praise that He is do and here in Zephaniah chapter three we see some motivations for praise. These things ought to fan your flame uh, to want to praise God in your life. So look what it says there, Zephaniah chapter three verse fourteen. The Bible says, "Single out, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you; He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil." On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Watch this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I can't wait to explain that verse. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time... I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Great passage of Scripture. A lot of things here we need to consider. Uh, but this book, Zephaniah, just three chapters, is 
uh, written by the prophet Zephaniah. And we know, according to chapter 1, verse 1 of this book, that Zephaniah delivered his message uh, during the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. Anybody know much about Josiah? Anybody got any, 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 any thoughts about Josiah tonight? Anybody remember anything special about Josiah? Anybody? Just checking, just checking with you tonight. Anybody? Can we tell you something about Josiah? All right. Josiah was a king that led a great revival in uh, Judah, uh, in the city of Jerusalem. If you remember, Josiah was the one that, that found the long-lost book of the law. As a matter of fact, one of his priests found it in the temple, and he brought it to Josiah. Josiah said, what is this? They said, this is the word of God. So he reads it and says, we're not doing any of this. We should be. And so he led in great reforms in Judah, saying, we ought to do what this book says. And and there was a great revival that happened during his reign. And based upon the timeline, Zephaniah was a part of this effort to call Judah back to God. To say, what you're doing is not biblical, doesn't line up with the Bible, so we're going to do what the Bible says and get back to what God says. And this was a, a major movement of God, and Zephaniah was instrumental in this, preaching this message. Now, kind of a quick outline of the book of Zephaniah, if you want to go back and study it a little bit further. Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, speaks of the day of the Lord, which, which speaks of a coming day of judgment for uh, God's people because they had rebelled against him. But as he talks about coming judgment for his people, you can see that this judgment reflects something bigger that's coming even farther down the road. And the coming judgment against his people, the Jews, was a... Uh, a picture of the greater judgment that comes at the end of time called the day of the Lord, which the day of the Lord will be a day of destruction for those that do not know Jesus. It will be a day of deliverance for those that do. That, that's the day that's coming at the end of time. And so it, he starts talking about the, the coming judgment for Judah in this day and time, but it's obvious he's talking about something much bigger as he begins to unpack the day of the Lord. So that's chapter 1, a little bit into chapter 2. In chapters 2, verse 4, through chapter 3, verse 8, he speaks of the judgment of the nations, that he's going to judge different nations for their rebellion against God. But then at the end of chapter 3, the passage we just read part of, uh, the Lord, uh, Lord tells us of the restoration of the remnant. He's going to preserve his people through all of this judgment. He's going to preserve them for a purpose. And I'll tell you what that purpose is in just a few moments. Here's a great summary of Zephaniah. This comes from uh, Kendall Easley, Dr. Uh, Kendall Easley, and I had him in seminary, great guy, and he says that Zephaniah speaks of this. Although Zephaniah prophesied coming judgment against the nations, his main message was against Judah, the southern kingdom, once they were split, whose sins were so serious that they would go into exile on the day of the Lord. But later, they would be restored to righteousness. So there's, there's these, these thundering messages of judgment and yet there are these bright spots of hope that God's still going to do something wonderful with and through his people. So that's kind of a little bit of the backdrop of the book of Zephaniah. But starting there in verse 14 in chapter 3 through the end of the book, there are some reasons that surface concerning why we should praise God. Some, some motivations for praising God. I want to give you four of those tonight. I think it says, I think I wrote five, but there's only four. Uh, four motivations, four, four uh, reasons to praise God. Did your, did your handout say five or four? Four reasons to praise God? Oh, okay, you got the correct version. So four reasons to praise God. Now, I want to just walk you through these four reasons. And, and praise is what he's looking for because look what verse 14 says. 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. If you want to know some more about singing when you worship, then listen to my sermon from this past Sunday. I talked this past Sunday in Colossians about singing, what we ought to sing. So you, you can reference that. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So he's calling his people to praise. He's calling his people to, to adore him, to praise him, to sing to him. Now here's the reason why. What are some reasons, some motivations they had to praise God's great name. Well, let me give you four. You ready? These are motivations for you and I to praise God. Number one, the Lord is gracious to his people. The Lord is gracious to his people. Look what it says there in verse 15. He just told them, sing aloud, rejoice, exult with all your heart. Why? Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, he has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So he speaks here of his grace to them. He was going to shower them with undeserved, unmerited favor. Because of that, he says, you ought to praise the Lord. So the Lord is gracious to his people. Now here's the big question. Who are God's people? Who are God's people? Well, this passage gives us part of the answer. God's people are certainly the Jews. Right? Look what he says there in verse 15. He says, The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Back in verse 14 he speaks of the daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem. So he's clearly here speaking to the Jews. The Jews are his people. And you say, wait, why are the Jews God's chosen people? Why did he choose Abraham and choose to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. Why did God do that? Here's the, here's the answer. You ready? Because he wanted to. There's no other explanation. As a matter of fact, over in Deuteronomy, the Lord says to, to, to Israel, He says, I didn't choose you because you were big or strong or mighty or wise. I didn't choose you because there was something lovely about you. I chose you in spite of that. That's what he tells them. I chose you because I wanted it. That's my plan. I have a plan to redeem a lost and dying world, and I have chosen to do it uh, working through the Jewish people. So God chose them, and God is serious about his chosen people. As a matter of fact, when he entered into this covenant with Abraham over in Genesis chapter 12, he said, the people that bless you, I'm going to bless. And the people that curse you, I'm going to curse. Now, I don't want to play with that. And and I, I still think that that principle is in play today. I want to be friends with God's people. I want to love them, point them to the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. I want to support them. As Psalm says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I mean, we need to be friends with the Jewish people. They're God's chosen people. I don't want to find myself in an adversarial position with God's chosen people. That would be foolish. And so he's talking here to his people. The Jews are his people. But there's something more happening here in Zephaniah. Not only are his people the Jews, but his people, God's people, consists of representatives, in your notes, representatives from all the peoples of the earth. So God is forming his people, and he's taking representatives from every people group on the face of the earth. That's pretty awesome, right? Now, he said, well, how do you know that? Where do you get that from Zephaniah? Well, back up with me to Zephaniah. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. 
He says, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples. What's he mean when he says the peoples? He's talking about all the different people groups of the earth. And, and very quickly, a people group is a group of people that are bound together by language and culture. That's what a people group is. And there, uh, according to what, uh, what different organization you're looking at, there are over 10,000 people groups in the world that have this separate ethnic identity. Okay, And so... The, the Lord says, I'm doing something among all the peoples of the earth. And the Bible tells in Revelation that God's going to get it done because around the throne, when we all get to heaven, the Bible says there'll be people from every tribe, every tongue, every people group on the face of the earth. They're all going to be. So God's saving folks from every ethnic group on the face of the earth. Isn't that exciting? That's what God's doing right now. And I'm glad he's doing that because I'm not a Jew. And my only hope is that God would extend His grace to a Gentile. And He did, through His Son, Jesus Christ. So He says, For that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, surfing with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, Cush is down there around Ethiopia, North Africa. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my Offering. So he's saying he's going to gather people from all over to come and worship him. Jews, but also folks that are not Jews who place their faith in him. Now you say, wait, is that true? Are we really God's people if we place our faith in Christ? Well, turn with me to Galatians very quickly. New Testament. Galatians chapter 3. I don't want to belabor this point, but I want to show you this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Very quickly, look at me. Who is the father of the Jewish people? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Okay, now, can I say I'm one of them? Can I say that? I'm not a Jew. Can I say I'm one of them, and so are you? So let's all just praise the Lord. Look what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, in other words, if you are born again, if you are saved, if you're regenerate, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So here's what that means. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been saved, that happened for me when I was nine years old, if that's happened to you, God has grafted you in with the Jewish people, his people. You've become his people. You are now spiritual Israel. Isn't that cool? You are one of the people of God if you know Jesus Christ. So these promises for his people found in Zephaniah apply not just to the Jews, but all those who are his people by faith in Jesus Christ. So what does God's grace look like to his people? We'll look back in Zephaniah. Zephaniah, chapter 3. First of all, for God's people there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Look what it says in verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. In other words, God is saying, there's coming a time when I will justify you. You will no longer be under my judgment, under my wrath. You will be saved from my wrath, and you will not know me as judge. You will know me as father. And, and that's what happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer under God's judgment. You're, you're no longer under condemnation. You become a son or daughter of God. That's glorious, is it not? The Bible says in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
No condemnation. If you know Christ, you're no longer under the judgment of God. You know why? Because Jesus took all of your judgment on the cross. All of the judgment you deserve, Jesus was on the cross, and the Father was pouring out that judgment on His Son. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Right? And so for God's people, there's coming a time when there's, there's no condemnation is what He's saying here. I will make, it, I will make a, a justification available. He's talking there of justification through His Son. Also for God's people, victory over the enemy is promised. Look what it says in verse, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. He has cleared away your enemies. So God's saying, if you're my people, there's coming a time I'm going to do away with your enemies. Now, in the the immediate context of Zephaniah, this speaks of God doing away with Israel's enemies, the Jewish people's enemies. But in the, the larger context of what God is doing in the world, when we are His people, God is going to deal with our enemies. Right? So, so what are our enemies? Or who are our enemies? Who, who, to, for Christians, who are our enemies? Yeah, the demonic realm, right? Satan and his demons. They are definitely our enemies. The Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. Right? He, the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. He's a liar, a deceiver, accuser of the brethren. Yes, he's our enemy. His demons, they are enemies of God's people. What else? Any other enemies you can think of out there? Okay, enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross. Over in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about enemies of the cross. People that are just just opposed to Jesus, opposed to the gospel, opposed to Christianity. And because they hate Jesus, they hate the people that bear his name. They hate his followers. And, And there is still today in our time great persecution coming against Christ followers in our world. And even when you read the book of Revelation, you see that there are these martyrs who died and are in heaven, and they look at their brothers and sisters who are suffering under other persecutors, and they say, How long, O Lord? When when are you going to bring this to an end? Guess what? One day God's going to bring it to an end. He's going to bring all of our enemies to naught. And we will be in a wonderful place called heaven where there will be no more enemies. There's one more enemy the Bible discusses that we all have. You know what that enemy is? Death. Death. The Bible says that Jesus defeated our last enemy, who is death. No one's figured out how to get away from that enemy, have they? Death comes for us all. But if you know Christ, death is not the end, or it's not not separation from God. Death is a transition into the very presence of God, where you will be with Him in a place where there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears. Christ will wipe all the tears from your face. So, So if you know Christ... Death is no longer your enemy. Death has been defeated when Jesus rose from the grave, right? And so, for God's people, victory over the enemy is promised. That's good news, isn't it? We serve a victorious God. We are a victorious people. One day, God's going to set it all right. When the, listen, when the dust settles on human history, you know what's going to happen? The Bible tells us. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know who wins? God wins. Right? God wins. So, I want to be on the winning team. I want to be one of his people. And the only way I can be one of his people is through Jesus Christ. The Lord is gracious to his people. Number two, the Lord is with his people. 
I'm going to speed up a little bit now. The Lord is with his people. Look back in Zephaniah with me. Chapter 3, verse 15. The second part of that verse says, The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. He's right in the middle of you. That's what he's saying. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So here's what Zephaniah is saying. Speaking to the Jews, you're God's people, and because you're his people, he's right in the middle of you. And because we are his people through Christ, we're, we're the offspring of Abraham, spiritual Israel, we can know that Jesus is right in the middle of us. He's with us. Isn't that what he told us in Matthew chapter 1 when we see what his name's going to be, his title? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. You remember what Jesus said when he gave the Great Commission? He said, go and, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you for. Lo, I'm with you. How long? Always, even to the end of the age. And so we have this same promise. God is with us. Now, what does that mean? It means that the presence of the Lord drives out fear. If God is, that's what he says here. Look what he says. Verse 16. He's in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Verse 16, fear not, O Zion. The Lord your God is in your midst. If God is really with you, listen, you don't have to fear. Now, this presence of God in our life is, is, is not primarily tangible. There may be times when God you know, manifests His presence in your life in some special way. But most of the time, we don't, we don't walk around with chill bumps and, and, and warm fuzzies and special feelings, do we? But God's with us, right? Whether we have chill bumps or not. Whether, whether we go to church and, and the music is wonderful and the preacher knocks out of the park and we say, Woo, what a worship service. God was here. But even if you go to church and the music's kind of flat and the preacher lays an egg... All right, it happens, it happens. God's still there, right? Because he's promised to be with us. God is with us. And so, listen, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear. You don't have to live here. There's, there, listen, there's nothing you, as a child of God, there's nothing you face by yourself. Nothing. God is with you. And we've got to remember that by faith because we don't always feel it. So we've got to have faith that no matter what we're encountering, what we're going through, God is with us. So, Wade, why should I praise God? Because he's with us. Because of his unfailing presence in our lives. The Lord is with his people. Number three, let me give you another reason to praise God. This is good. This is, this is where I want to camp out for a moment. The Lord rejoices over his people. Look what it says in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I, I, I shared this passage recently with our staff in, in, in staff meeting. And before I even read the passage, I just asked the question. I said, um, describe... Describe God to me. What are God's attributes? You know, what's God like? What's his nature? What's his character? And so they begin to go around the table and say things like, God is sovereign. 
God's holy, um, God's gracious, um, God's powerful, God's omniscient, He's all-knowing, and just walking through those wonderful attributes of God. God is patient, you know, all all these things we know about God because it says it in His Word. And we went around, and after they were through, I said, you know, I find it interesting that no one said God is joyful. God is joyful. We don't think of God as joyful, do we? We kind of think he's kind of up in heaven, you know, just kind of running the universe and just kind of, you know, you know, kind of watching out over everything. And, and, you know, we don't think of him as being a joyful God. But this verse says he rejoices. And guess who he rejoices over? He rejoices over his people. Pretty amazing. Now, how does the Lord rejoice over his people? Well, three ways. First of all, with gladness. It says there in verse 17, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He he is glad that you are his. There's a gladness in his life as he rejoices over you. I mean, he, listen to me, we don't talk in these terms about God very much, but it's right here in the Bible. God is crazy about you. And it's not because you deserve it. He's crazy about me. And it's not because I deserve it. It's because he has chosen to set his perfect love on us even though we don't deserve it. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? He is rejoicing with gladness. And also, he rejoices over his people with nurture. Look what it says. He will quiet you by his love. This this pictures up a parent holding a, a, a hurting child near to them and, and holding them as they cry and as they hurt and, 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 and letting that child know that they're caring for them, they're in the arms of, of a loved one, and they're going to be okay. And it applies that imagery to God and his people. So, you know, I've got, I've got three young kids, one on the way. Pray for me. All right. I'm pray for Claire, but, but pray for me too, all right? And, and, you know, kids get hurt. They, they scrape knees, you know, hit their head on the counter. Just, you know, the kids get hurt. And when that happens, the immediate response is, I need somebody to hold me. Right? That's what they expect. They scream their head off, and you come running, and you pick them up, and you hold them. One, one thing I've always, I've always disliked as a parent is taking my kids to get shots. Because, you, you know, you get them in there, and they're looking around and kind of smiling and giggling, you know, especially when they're little. And they're just kind of doing their thing, and they're, you know, dad's there, mom's there, and they're, you know, they're just happy to be, you know, be around. All of a sudden, you know, someone walks in and jabs them with that needle, and it's like their face just goes into sheer terror. Like, why am I feeling pain, right? And listen, when that happens, when they're little, they don't understand why there's a stick in their leg. They don't understand that that's going to keep them safe from, from illnesses and things of that nature. They don't understand that, do they? They just know it hurts. And even though you can't explain it to them, as a parent, you know what you can do? You can hold them, right? You can hold them, and you can, and you can let them know, hey, even though you don't understand the pain, I've got this. I've got you. It's going to be okay. And that's the imagery in this verse. Think about that. That's what God does with us. When we hurt, even when we, when we don't understand our hurt, God holds us. And God holds us tight. He quiets us with his love. So listen, next time you hurt, 
Next time you find yourself in a trial, maybe you're in the middle of a valley right now. Next time you are hurting, remember this. You are being held. Awesome. You are being held in the sovereign arms of God. Incredible. Like a, like a mother or father holds their crying child. You are being held. Don't forget that. No matter what you're going through, understand it or not, you are being held. He rejoices over his people with nurture. And then third, this is awesome, he rejoices over his people with singing. I mean, if this wasn't in the Bible, it would even sound weird to say, wouldn't it? But look what it says. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you. In other words, you're the object of his exaltation. He's excited. And he does it with not just singing. What kind of singing? Loud singing. So think about that. If you're God's child, God is rejoicing over your life, your redeemed life, He's rejoicing over you with loud singing. Incredible. Is that hard for you to believe? It's right there in the Bible. And it is an amazing truth. I love what John Piper writes. He writes, we must banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom, as though Christ found a loophole in the law, did some fancy plea bargaining, and squeaked us by the judge. No way. God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice. And when we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a ring on our finger, kills the fatted calf, throws a party, shouts a shout that shakes the ends of the creation, and leads in the festal dance. That, that of course, is imagery from the prodigal son passage in Luke 15. Over in Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of three lost things, a a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son, a prodigal son. And every time that which is, has been lost is found, it says, all heaven rejoices. And the father and the prodigal son pictures God our father. When we, when we return home, he rejoices, kills the fatty calf, puts on the robe, has a party. God rejoices over his people with loud singing. Incredible. Incredible. Do you believe it? I read this story from Sam Storm's book, The Singing God, where he deals with this passage in detail. He tells about a counseling session he had with a young girl named Sarah. Here's what he writes. Sarah's father had been a demanding tyrant. His so-called love for his daughter was cruelly and continually dangled in front of her like the proverbial carrot on a stick. His promise sounded tantalizing to Sarah, but ultimately rung hollow. If you look pretty, I'll love you. If you make good grades, I'll love you. If you are successful and helpful and don't embarrass me in front of others, I'll love you. I've heard similar stories before, but that didn't make her words any less difficult to endure. Sarah told me I was never quite pretty enough. Slim enough, smart enough. She never did get a bite of that carrot. All she could remember was the bitter aftertaste of her father's disdain and rejection. Sarah and I spent considerable time working through the destructive consequences of her lack of experience with a father's love. But we weren't making much headway until I asked the question, What does God feel when he looks at you? What does God feel when he looks at you? Let me ask you this question. What does God feel when he looks at you? 
Here's what Sarah said. Pity. Why, I asked. Because I'm pitiful. I'm pathetic, she said. For the next hour or so, I explained to Sarah how much God loves her. I labored at finding just the right words to convince her it was true. It was tough going. I explained the depth of his love as expressed in the cross of Christ. I used images, vivid metaphors, and countless word pictures. They all failed. The idea of a loving father who enjoyed her was incomprehensible to Sarah. Nothing seemed to make sense. Then I read to her Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's how God feels about you, Sarah, I told her. He looks at you, he thinks of you, and he sings for joy. She was stunned. God sings? God sings over me? After a few moments of shocked silence, tears began to well up in her eyes and eventually streamed down her cheeks. Sam, are you sure, she asked. Yeah, I'm sure. But Sarah said, I'm so pathetic. I really am. I'm, I'm overweight and I'd die if anyone saw the inside of my house right now. It's almost as messy as I am. My husband is furious at me again. I can't do anything right. And you say God sings over me with joy? I doubt it. More likely, he's screaming in disgust. My dad used to do that. Again, I asked her to read the passage. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The tears returned. Do you struggle to comprehend God's love for you the same way Sarah did in this story? Does it seem almost too good to be true that as one who is redeemed by Jesus Christ, God sings over you with joy? Can you fathom that? The God of the universe rejoicing over your life. Not because you're good, not because I'm good, but because he's good. A God of unfailing, unconditional love. That's what the Bible says. And so we ought to praise God because he rejoices over us. I mean, if that doesn't get you excited about the Lord, what will? Right? What will? Let me give you one final thought, and we're going to close down and, and transition just a moment. The fourth thing is this. The Lord has a plan of redemption. Wait, why should I praise God? Because he has a plan of redemption that he's working out perfectly. Look in verse 18. He says to, to his people, near context, Judah, the southern kingdom, the Jews, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. In other words, he knew that judgment was coming. God knew this. And shortly after, about 20 years after Josiah's reign, God sent the Babylonian Empire to come in and overthrow the southern kingdom of Judah. And they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the buildings, they killed thousands of people, and they took thousands of Jews back with them to Babylon. It's called the Babylonian Captivity. It happened about 586 B.C. There was a terrible time, and God knew that the Jews would be snatched from their homeland, and they'd go to a foreign land where they would not be able to participate in the festivals anymore. So he says there, 
I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. You'll, you'll long for the days when you could go to the temple and worship God, but you're, you'll be so far away from home in a pagan land. But he says, that's going to come to an end. I'll gather you so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, that time I will deal with all your oppressors, Babylon. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. In other words, you will be in a weakened, broken condition, but I will save you. I will gather you. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, listen. The Jews had turned their back on God. They had worshipped false gods. Gods like Moloch, where they would participate in child sacrifice. Gods like Baal. And they turned their back on God's law and God's word. And turned their back to the one true God. And they had crossed the line in the sovereign heart of God. And so God decided to send devastating judgment through the Babylonian Empire. But God tells them, you're going to suffer, but it will not be the end of my people. I'm going to preserve a remnant of Jews. Now, here's the question. Why did God choose to preserve a remnant? Why didn't he just destroy them all the way? I mean, why did he allow them to go off to Babylon and then, and then, and then save some of them and bring them back home? Why did, why did he do that? Listen, send your notes. God preserved the Jews so that he could send a Savior. Do you remember the promise that God made to Abraham when this whole thing started with the Jewish people? To Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he says, through your descendants, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Now, what does that mean? It means that God was going to give Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac. Isaac would have Jacob, Jacob would have Joseph, and there would be more sons and more descendants. And, and, and from Abraham's seed, there would grow a great nation called the, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And even though they rebelled against God, God did not totally destroy them. He, he maintained a remnant because one day God was going to send through the Jewish people a Messiah. And guess what? His name is Jesus. Right? And, and Jesus would come to earth and live a perfect life as God on earth. He would completely fulfill the requirements of the law. And then he would willingly go to the cross and die on the cross for the sins of humanity. And because he paid it all on the cross, if anyone from any people group on the earth places their faith in Jesus, they will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. See that? So Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is called the, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Through the Jews, God sent a Messiah. Through the Messiah, salvation is made available to all the peoples of the earth if they'll just place their faith in him. So God preserved the Jews so he could send a Savior. So really, Zephaniah, this last little passage, it, it's, it's ancient history. It's, you know, it's the Jews and the Babylonians, all this. But really, it's about you and me. God is preserving a remnant so he can send a Savior for us. That's pretty awesome, right? Secondly, God promised to save a remnant from the coming devastating judgment. He did that to save them from, from the Babylonian captivity so he could send a Savior. So God in the Bible is working out his plan of redemption. He has a plan to save through his son Jesus Christ, and the Bible's all about that. The Bible is one big story of God seeing our need for redemption and God providing redemption through the nation of Israel, through the Messiah that came through Israel, for all the peoples of the earth. 
And by the way, that's why we go on short-term mission trips. That's why we give the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. That's why we, people leave our church and go plant their lives in other countries and other settings and plant churches because Jesus died for the sins of the world, the Bible says. And if anyone from any tribe, any tongue, any language, any ethnicity, if anyone places their faith in Christ, they will be saved, right? And we get to be a part of that, to go tell that good news. So the Lord has a plan of redemption. So, very quickly, Wade, why should I praise God? Or give me some motivation for praising God. The Lord is gracious to his people. The Lord is with his people. The Lord rejoices over his people. And the Lord has a plan of redemption. These four things will do two things for you. It'll fuel your worship. You shouldn't have a hard time getting to church on Sunday when these things are true about God. Amen? You should be chomping at the bit to come and worship Him on Sunday. And you should be chomping at the bit to worship Him on Monday too. And, and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. You should, you should be chomping at the bit to worship God because He is so good. And number two, these things will inform your prayer life. You ever run out of things to pray about when you're praying? Like you know in your prayer life you ought to be praising God, right? And you say... God, I praise you, and you, don't think, you can't think of what else to say. Well, talk to him about these four things. Just praise him for these things that are true of God and true of your life. And so I hope that you'll think about these, these four things a lot from Zephaniah and that your desire to praise God will be greatly, greatly fueled and fanned into flames.